This is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's ninth and possibly penultimate film, if we're to believe his swearing over many years that he will only make 10 movies before he retires. And joining me to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are Ingu Kang, a staff culture writer at Slate. Hi, Ingu. Hello, hello. You're speaking to us from the Bay Area? From UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley, yes, my alma mater. And uh, and from L.A., we have Matthew Desim, also a staff culture writer, and we should know the nights and weekends Slate editor of, of the Browbeat Culture Blog. So you are the, the Slate After Dark guy who's always coming up with <laughs> things that one might not see on Slate during the day, but all for the better. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. So all three of us have only seen this sprawling, what, two hour and 40 minute or so long movie once. And uh, it's really, really overstuffed with lots of characters and pastiches and subplots and little diversions within the narrative, etc. So it is possible that this spoiler will not plod one by one through all the developments in the script. But what we are trying to do is plow through this vast Tarantinian panorama of Hollywood in 1969, the year of the Manson murders, which this movie is loosely connected with, as we'll get into, and to try to see how Tarantino is doing what he's doing and why. So before we get started, I wanted to just go over around and here just briefly what was your kind of emotional critical response to this movie overall are you well disposed or ill disposed ingu i'll start with you um <laughs> i would not say that i was particularly looking forward to it i think just because there's like a part of me that sort of like mansoned out. There was a very great long form podcast, basically like a mini series that Karina Longworth did for her. You must remember this podcast. And it was very comprehensive. And I just thought, okay, this is like the story that I got that I need. And I think the trailers are very interesting because the trailers, there's I'm going to reveal right now that there's a sort of twist ending to this story. And so the trailers have been very coy and sort of like, you have to watch it for yourself and doesn't really tell you what the plot of the movie is. And so between like the cutesiness of like the marketing and just me feeling like I have had enough of the story and also being tired of like this idea that there is more stylized violence to be gleaned from an already real life stylized uh, massacre. I just thought, why does this need to exist? And I think I came away from the movie thinking, you know, this is probably worth watching. <laughs> mm-hmm. So pleasantly surprised with low expectations. Yes. What about you, Matt? I would say I was uh, pretty much on board with the movie through the ending, uh, until the ending, I should say. I was I was looking forward to it. I was. I live in Los Angeles, so when they were dressing Hollywood Boulevard to look like 1969 or whatever. I went down and took a look at that and was just sort of looking forward to seeing his version of this town in that year. And on those those grounds, I, I absolutely delivered. But as Ingo says, the, the Manson murders are already sort of a a tricky business, and I was less less thrilled with how they were handled in the, in the movie. Yeah, the ending is quite the puzzlement, and we will get to the ending and talk about what he does with the Manson murders and, and how we all feel about it. But first, I want to give a sense of just the world that this movie unfurls in. And Matt, since you saw some of the set dressing happening in L.A., maybe I'll throw that one to you. But as often with Tarantino movies, but maybe even more so with this one, the, the look, the period sound, the period music, the period costumes are a huge part of this world that he's sweeping us up into. Can you just talk a little bit about how all that looks, feels, and sounds? Yeah, um, I, it's Los Angeles in 1969. I mean, it, it is not a realistic version of Los Angeles. It's this sort of Hollywood fantasia uh, where every billboard and every bus stop ad and every sign you see just is coincidentally an ad for a movie or television show that appears to be one of Tarantino's. Uh, it's not that different from from kind of flipping through his video library i would think it's gorgeous it's it's a it's a really beautiful sort of hollywood looking thing it, it, the period details aren't necessarily right it's but they're right if you're making sort of an imagined hollywood which is which is i think what he's doing and obviously like the landmarks that are in all of these period movies are there they go to musso and frank they go you know 
The Playboy Mansion. Yeah, they go to the Playboy Mansion. They go to, but actually, the moment where I really, really loved it the most, as far as just like a, a picture of Los Angeles, is there's a, a segment late in the movie where you just see neon signs going on at various places around Los Angeles, and that was just beautiful. I thought. Yeah, there's there's a real love for it's not necessarily historic Los Angeles, but for the movie vision of what Los Angeles was at that time, which of course is yeah. also kind of elegiac in nature because he's making a movie at the exact moment that that Hollywood is is disappearing, that the old studio Hollywood is transitioning into the independent studio world of new Hollywood and sort of those institutional structures that kept all of our characters in place are starting to dissolve. Yeah. I think if you also know L.A., it's sort of like a great L.A. movie in the sense that, like, you can see, like, the different types of L.A. a little bit. There's a scene where... Brad Pitt's character, who is like sort of like the assistant to this slowly failing movie slash TV star played by Leonardo DiCaprio. After Brad Pitt's character drops his boss off in his mansion in the Hollywood Hills, he basically takes his own car, this like, I don't know, like rusting jalopy, takes it to Chatsworth, where he lives in a trailer behind a drive-thru. And the drive-thru just sort of looks very sandy and dusty and brown you know it's there's no like concrete um even for all of the cars and you see this guy who sort of just like lives in his trailer and you see that this is a city where you have these like very glamorous highs and then like a lot of people on the outskirts just kind of eking out a living like serving the people who are glamorous and rich and i thought that was a really nice touch Yeah, the person I kept thinking of in the establishment of Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth is his name, was Cato Kalin, the the O.J. Simpson (laughs) hanger-on who was a part of the trial, right? Who was this sort of blonde surfer dude who lived in almost a a guest house behind O.J.'s house and had no other apparent function except to sort of be there as a gopher for whatever O.J. needed. And Cliff Booth is shown as being formerly a more important uh, person in the industry in that he was the stuntman for Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, this kind of fallen cowboy hero from from the 50s. Uh, But because of some trouble in the past that we'll get into, he's now been downgraded essentially to a glorified driver and handyman who's rarely used for stunt work at all. And the way that we find all this out about their characters is really economically done and nicely done by Tarantino, I think, in a black and white intro that is entirely a pastiche, not quite of Bounty Law, the black and white show on which Rick Dalton was a cowboy hero, but more of a of a behind-the-scenes interview that they're doing on the Bounty Law set where he, Rick Dalton, and his stuntman Cliff booth, sit down to talk about what stunt work it is and, you know, what it is to to work on a cowboy set together. And uh, that was one of those moments. I mean, Tarantino always excels at, at pastiche, right? At just faking the look of and the grain of, of any old sort of um, filmmaking format, or, or in this case, TV making format. And this movie kind of starts off with a bang in that, you know, you you get thrown into that universe so that you know what is going to be lost in um, in the, the fast forward to 1969. It seems to be about a decade later or so than this bounty law intro that we get. But in 1969, he has been sort of typecast now as the bad guy. And we get this extended cameo by Al Pacino playing Rick Dalton's agent. And basically, he tells Rick Dalton, you need to basically go star in some spaghetti westerns because right now you're being typecast as the bad guy. And if you're being typecast as the bad guy, the audience will only want to root for you to fail. And that is how your career is going to die. And so, essentially, Rick Dalton really does not want to go make these (laughs) spaghetti westerns because he hates them and thinks they're stupid. But he has sort of looming ahead of him this idea that he has to go to Italy and make these, like, artsy movies he's not really—he would never—he himself would never watch. And it's funny because we spend basically, like, the first two-thirds of this movie really— like watching their particular friendship play out between Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. And you sort of see the these like Manson girls like on the side of the road waiting to hitchhike. And I think a lot of the suspense of the movie, because uh, the first two thirds of the movie really do feel very languid and very chatty in ways Uh, that sort of feel a little meandering to me. You spend a lot of the suspense of the movie comes from where is like the Manson factor going to come in? 
Yeah, the Mansons are always just around the corner. Literally, they live next door, you know, um, Rick Dalton's mansion, which Cliff Booth spends a lot of time at. (laughs) He spends the night there frequently with his dog, Brandy, is right next door to the Tate's household, which makes anybody who knows anything about those murders also think of the LaBianca family, neighbors of Sharon Tate, who were also killed on that same night as the Manson murders. So the fact that they're neighbors seems to suggest that they're on one side and that the LaBiancas would be on the other side or something, right? But we never, we never actually see that. But what's quite remarkable about the pacing of this movie, and which I think you, you could critique it for if you want to critique Quentin Tarantino for taking a real-life horrible atrocity and making it into a somewhat feel-good, at least for most of its running time, kind of, as you say, loping kind of movie, is that the Mansons enter so, so slowly. I mean, Charlie Manson himself is barely a character. He is present. He's played by a sort of look-alike actor who I think has played Manson before in other projects. But he barely gets a line. Uh, Roman Polanski also is a figure that you see squiring Sharon Tate around in their little sports car next door to, to Leo's house, but barely gets a line. And the main way that we encounter the Manson family, first of all, they don't enter until well into the movie, right? It's probably half an hour into the movie that there's anything more than a quick glimpse at one of the barefoot Manson girls hitchhiking along the road. And... Uh, Well, we'll get to what happens when we do get there. But I think that the choice to make that such a small part of the narrative and yet to keep teasing us, teasing the audience that we're going to learn more later, we're going to see more later, is something of a morally questionable move on Tarantino's part as a director. It seems to me like he's doing a lot of what's not actual suspense, but is just sort of dangling of something sinister before us to make us think that there's something coming besides this really very enjoyable hangout movie that the movie is for at least two thirds of its running time. Yeah, I think he sort of builds that. I mean, like you're saying, the Manson's become more and more present as the thing goes on, but he's also playing with that uh, in, a, in, a, in a very deliberate sort of knowing way, I think. Like, the closer you get to when those murders should happen, the more he leans into the sort of pseudo-documentary aspects of it, right? You start getting the voiceover that says, you, you start seeing the precise time of everything that's happening, right? Like, he kind of leans into the further you get into the movie, the more it treats it like, and now we're approaching these fateful events or whatever, which is a fake out, as we'll talk about, right? So I don't know, Is your when you say it's morally questionable, you think it's morally questionable to use that murder as sort of like a TikTok for the, for the movie going forward, or do you just think it's treated carelessly or, or what? Um... Yeah, I'm just not sure. I guess I'm just not sure exactly why. And this is, this is getting very early on in the, the spoiler into a, a big yeah, abstract yeah. question. But why did Tarantino want to make this movie about the Manson murders as opposed to, you know, making a big sprawling saga about the era when Hollywood was transitioning from old Hollywood to new Hollywood? You know, all of these questions about, you know, heroes and villains and kind of the decline of the studio system. Uh, there are so many of these things that he could have explored without bringing in the Manson family that I'm just curious as to why he wants to retell that story or, you know, as we'll see, kind of re-engineer that story in this particular context. Why? What, what's the goal? I would say that for me, I understand that some people might enjoy the hangout feel. I personally felt very bored for a lot of this movie, especially during the pastiches. And so for me, uh, what happened was that because I knew the Manson family, something was going to happen toward the end, it almost kept making me anticipate for like the murder of Sharon Tate, which I think is... I I don't know how much of it is deliberate, but that was the effect it had on me. And then it made me sort of uncomfortable that Tarantino uh, made his audience complicit in almost like this idea of like the murders happening. Right. Especially the way Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, who I would say appears on screen a lot, but is not a major character, right? I mean, she appears on screen a lot, lot, but we have very little idea of her interiority or motivation, except in that one scene where she goes to the movies to watch herself, right? And that's actually a beautifully orchestrated scene of her seeing the real Sharon Tate on screen and hearing the reactions of the audience and kind of finding pleasure in the fact that she's being enjoyed as an actor, right? And it's a moment when you feel her hopefulness and her kind of innocence and excitement about being at the beginning of this Hollywood career. And that's one of the moments that I mean, Matt, by kind of a dangle. It's like she's bait in that scene, right? I mean, she is this beautiful, likable, really endearing character who we're rooting for to do well, and yet who we know from our knowledge of history is not going to survive the year of 1969. 
And all of those scenes with her just seemed like a way of kind of wetting the audience's appetite for this violence that was to come. I mean, we yes. will we will talk about what happens with the actual ending and how those expectations are maybe thwarted. But there's no question that there's a bait angle to, to the way Margot Robbie is used as Sharon Tate in this movie, no? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing I would say about it is we keep talking about the murders, but it's pretty clear that there's one murder there that he's interested in more than the other people who were uh, there that night, right? Like, you don't get these things about the other... Uh, the other victims. It's just Sharon Tate. And it seems like like you you said that scene where she was watching herself. I didn't have a problem with Tarantino using that being like, oh, you want to see the Manson murders, you know, that being sort of the tease or the attraction throughout it. I might have had a problem with it if it had ended with a an incredibly detailed recreation of the Manson murders, you know, but the way that that expectation was not met, I didn't, the, I, I don't feel like Tarantino was like fetishizing that death in exactly the way that the Manson murders have been, have become this sort of you know, cultural moment that people look back at as the end of the 60s or whatever. You know, I, I mean, I think I, th- I think he's more playing around with the fact that other people do that. I, I think he feels that way about Sharon Tate, but I don't, using that as the TikTok, if you're not going to recreate the murders themselves, which he, he does not, I don't know. I mean, I think that's more like playing with what the audience wants to see than it is necessarily what Tarantino wants. I guess so. So then is it a critique of the audience? I mean, is he trying to say, look, you you sick fetishizers, you're the ones who are fetishizing Sharon Tate's upcoming death? No, he clearly, as you said, Dana, he's clearly like dangling this like beautiful woman who is like a newlywed and also, as we'll see in the third act, pregnant as the real life Sharon Tate was and kind of using her to say like, oh, don't you want something to happen? Don't you want like, I don't know, yeah. I guess. I'm not convinced by, I think that like you don't have to fetishize that massacre in order to also use it to whet the audience's appetite for violence. I mean, it felt to me like it's Tarantino fetishizes that killing in a different way. (laughs) You know, like it's like the, the true crime way of talking about that is the way that the movie sort of faints towards at the end where it's like, and then at 11.58 11.58 p.m., you know, the house white heard screams or whatever, like just sort of lovingly going over every single detail. And when it gets to like where everyone is on the day of the killing, it's doing that. It's doing the true crime thing. But then at the end, it's sort of like, no, the part about this that matters to Tarantino is, is Sharon Tate is sort of a locus for a positive dream of Hollywood or whatever. It's her in the movie theater seeing herself, right? Like, like there's a way in which that, that killing matters to him, but it's not quite the same. It's not the, it's this way. He's not interested in Manson. He's interested in Sharon Tate. In regards to that question about how queasy we're supposed to feel, I mean, that was really my overarching question coming out of this movie. And I know it can be open-ended. I know it doesn't have to be just one thing. But it was really something I came out with was just not knowing in a movie about heroes and villains and, you know, the kind of shifting position of hero and villain and the question of whether Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, is going to be playing a hero or villain for the rest of his career it seemed important to understand why we're given this very strange plot point, or it's not even a plot point, it's just a hint at, at, a, at a past that we never really see in flashback. This hint that Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, had killed his wife. So on the set of this show that Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio's characters are working on, we also have hanging out in the back lot uh, an actor playing Bruce Lee. And so there's a moment when Brad Pitt, who is, you know, proud of his physical abilities as a stuntman, an underemployed stuntman, gets into a fight with Bruce Lee and is then thrown off the set. The person who throws him off the set, it's worth noting, who's playing the wife of the director is Zoe Bell, the stunt coordinator for this movie and for many Quentin Tarantino movies and also a major character in his movie Death Proof. Um, so, you know, just having Zoe Bell show up as kind of the moral voice there was was a funny moment. But the reason that Zoe Bell's character wants Brad pit off of her set is that, as she says to her husband, everybody knows that he killed his wife and he got away with it. And this is our first, this is probably close to an hour into the movie, it's our first revelation that there's any such dark backstory about Brad Pitt, whose character we have known as kind of one of those characters that Brad Pitt excels at playing, you know, sort of a, a dopey stoner, go-along, get-along kind of guy. And uh, except for a very truncated flashback that shows him on a houseboat arguing with a woman who's presumably his wife, but shows no violence between them whatsoever, except for that little flashback, we get no hint as to whether it's true that he killed his wife or why it happened, how it happened, 
why he got away with it, etc. It's just something that is then lodged in our minds for the rest of the movie, that Brad Pitt is this wife killer. Doesn't he have like a spear or like a some sort of like a weapon in his hand that he would, I assume, use for like spear fishing or something? And she's it's nattering on, sort of like nagging him. And he, you just see him like with all of his like muscles coiled, holding this weapon in his arms. And then you have like a cut before anything happens. So you don't really know, but you it's like implied that like it would be understandable if you were maybe like a misogynist, like why he would have killed her. Yeah, it's a very dark implication. He is, in fact, holding something that could have been a weapon, although he's not aiming it at her. And I kept thinking that we were going to either cut back to that flashback on the boat and see what happened next or see it from a different point of view or something, have some memory about his trial and him getting off. But that's just it. That's the only note that we get about about that past of Brad Pitt's. And it was just something that sat uncomfortably with me for the rest of the movie where I thought, why were we given that piece of knowledge if we don't know what we're supposed to do with it? And and why does Brad Pitt's character continue to get to be so charming and really ultimately heroic even after that bit of revelation? Any thoughts about that? I mean, he is sort of implied to be very violent, right? I don't think that we truly get a sense of it until the very end. But in, I'm going to skip ahead like a little bit here where Brad Pitt's character ends up on at like Spawn Ranch, which is this like dusty former movie lot where they used to shoot the show he used to work on, Bounty Law. And it's where the Manson family lives now. And basically, when he tries to leave, he finds that he has a flat because someone has stabbed a knife into one of his tires. And when he figures out who did it, he tells the guy, like, fix it. And when the guy just laughs in his face, he starts beating him up, like, pretty brutally. And so we get these, like, flashes of, like, uncontrollable violence from Cliff Booth. And I do think that, I mean, that's definitely relevant to the ending, which we will come to. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. He is. He does beat the Manson guy up badly. But the Mansons are also also set up in this uh, in this movie as pretty bad guys themselves. There's not a lot of a sense of a backstory about, for example, how the Manson women ended up in the place where they are or how the cult works, you know, how the sort of mind control element of the Manson cult works. Really, I saw somebody in a review compare the Manson women as they're seen in mainly one brief scene in this movie to zombies. And that is a little bit how they move and congregate around him. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a, there's a case to be made, not that this movie is misogynist per se, but that it's not particularly interested in the inner experience of any of the female characters and that it's very eager to show the Mansons pretty much as the cowboy and his and his sidekick character would have seen them, which is as, you know, dirty, scary hippies who belong outside of society and who they just don't want anything to do with on their nice, fancy street. I mean, you say zombies. What the image that it reminded me of was like sort of those like stray cats that they have in, say, Greece or something, where they're just sort of lounging around with nothing to do all day. But when they all congregate in groups, it suddenly looks very eerie. Right. And, uh, and I think we're supposed to feel in that scene, or I did, anyway, identified with Brad Pitt. You're identified with the threat that he is he's undergoing by being alone on a ranch with all these strange zombie people. And uh, in that scene, I think a really wonderful scene that's a set piece that could stand outside the movie and be great, but the scene where he goes and sees George Spahn, played by Bruce Dern, who owns the ranch and is aware that all these hippies are squatting there, but is a little bit too out of it to quite understand what, what that's about, that that scene also carries forth this kind of small-c conservative bent to the movie that I'm talking about, you know, where essentially the old guard, the old order represented by Spawn, who Brad Pitt's character remembers from old movie shoots at the ranch, right? So it's sort of an old Hollywood scenario is threatened by this um, these social forces that have created the Mansons. There's not really a lot of analysis in this movie as to, you know, sort of larger social analysis as to why the Manson group congregated there, why all of those people were able to be influenced by a personality like Manson's at that moment in history, etc. The movie's not long on that. It's not Joan Didion, right? I mean, it's not trying to sort of <laughs> philosophize about late 60s California and dislocation and alienation and all of those things. It really is, well, I think, a hero and villain story set up with the Manson family as the villains. I mean, yeah. Manson family are villains. <laughs> oh, no question. I'm you know? not trying to make them into heroes. I'm just saying that yeah. 
whatever Tarantino is trying to open up or explore or explode, it doesn't include them. You know, it's not really interested in how that unit works. Well, I think it comes down to the question of how many movies the Manson family made, and the answer is none, right? Like, I, I think there's a sense in which the main value expressed there is just some of these people are making art that Tarantino likes and some of them are not. Don't you think that's sort of, if you wanted to predict how interested Tarantino would be in a character, that's, that's the way to do it, right? Especially in this movie. You mean whether or not they're connected to the industry? Exactly. And in what sense and what sorts of things are they making? Um, I mean, you don't, uh, you're not spending a lot of time on like soap opera sets in this, in this movie either. It really is just sort of a tour of the genres that uh, the Tarantino liked that were working right now. So it's not, it's not surprising to me that the people that are like not just outside of that world, but not even interested in that world are going to be the ones that he's the least interested in himself. I think the one Manson girl that we get to know the most is uh, named Pussycat, and she's played by Margaret Qualey, and she is sort of the one who lures Brad Pitt's character to Spawn Ranch because she's this, like, flirty hitchhiker, basically, that he keeps seeing around town. So, like, the one thing that we definitively probably know about her, about Pussycat, is that she's probably underage. So let's say she's 16 or 17, and a lot of these Manson girls sort of look to be around the same age. There are others who are played by Lena Dunham and Dakota Fanning, who both have like pretty minuscule roles, I think, for their stature. But in any case, uh, yeah, like a lot of these girls probably are just all teenagers. And we don't really, as Dana mentioned, we don't really get like a sense of how they were manipulated or what kind of backgrounds they came from that led to their ending up under Manson's thrall. And it is kind of depressing to see that like Tarantino has so little interest in where all of these girls come from. But obviously his characters wouldn't be. I mean, it's this is really a movie about Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, right? I mean, I don't... Yeah, but I mean, by that token, like Rick Dalton would definitely be interested in Sharon Tate, but she doesn't really get much interiority either. Yeah, no, fair enough. So a little bit later in the film, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, gets a slightly better job. He starts working on a Western TV show called Lancer, which, Matt, was an actual TV show at the time. Can you give us a little background on that? Yeah, it was an actual TV show. It starred James Stacy, who is the character who's played by Timothy Oliphant in the movie. It uh, just ran for two seasons from 68 to 1970. I haven't seen it. It looks like it's pretty much how it was on the show. It's about a family of ranchers named Lancer. And we don't get as much of a pastiche of that show as we do a a lot of backstage drama on the show. And uh, there's some great scenes in that section that teach us a lot about Leonardo DiCaprio's character and also something about what this movie thinks about television as opposed to film. And uh, I I thought we could maybe get into some of that stuff. I mean, the most remarkable scene to me is a long one where in between takes, there's kind of a break And in full makeup with his mustache, um, Leo sits down in a director's chair to read to pass the time before his his take starts. And next to him is a little girl, also fully in costume, who later on he's going to fake kidnap for this show that he's playing the villain in. And the the interaction between them is is quite striking. Do either of you have anything to say about the the Trudy-Rick Dalton conversation? Yeah, to me, like, it's just very striking that that, that Tarantino, who is getting older, uh, would put a character in his film who is a, what did she say she is? She's eight or something? Like an eight-year-old actress who is playing a small part on Lancer and is there just hanging out. And Rick Dalton has this sort of terrifying conversation with her where she is a parody of professionalism. She won't go out of character. She speaks, she articulates everything very clearly. She has very firm thoughts as to what an actor should do. And Dalton, as we know by this time, is just sort of goofing around. He's not somebody who's got a vision of himself as, as an artist. In fact, so, he's actually hammered on set at that moment. Yeah, reading like a... <laughs> a, a and hungover because he's... Uh, gotten drunk the night before too. Well, she, she gives him a speech where she says something like, uh, it, I'm trying to remember the line. Uh, it's something along the lines of, if I uh, staying in character makes me just a little bit better, and if there's something I can do to be a little bit better, I'm going to do it, which is not Rick Dalton's approach to his craft, let's say. And then there's another moment where he, I don't remember what he calls her, but he uses some sort of uh, 1960s sort of diminutive. Pumpkin puss. Yeah, pumpkin puss, exactly. And she uh, says something like, I don't like being called names like that, but I can tell that you're sad, so we'll talk about that later. And it really does <laughs> seem, it did seem to be a scene that was a lot more about Tarantino's experiences with the people coming up behind him than it was about something that might have plausibly happened on the, the set of Lancer in 1969. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, it was a movie about 
the extreme professionalism of this upcoming generation and how, you know, his phoning it in approach was only going to last for so much longer. And him realizing that, right, then he gets tears in his eyes as he's hearing her talk because he's he's sort of realizing that about himself. And something that really struck me stylistically and that I loved is that the subsequent scene you see of them filming together, right, when he, his character is holding her ransom and then uh, Luke Perry wonderfully comes in. It's going to be Luke Perry's sadly last appearance on film, uh, comes in as the the relative who's trying to save his little girl from this this villain who's kidnapped her. And that scene is shown exactly as if it were a movie. It's just, it's a wonderful sort of stylistic jump into the yeah. actual cross-cutting as it would exist in the film, rather than, you know, for example, us seeing the boom mic hanging over and the crew in the background, etc. It's a moment where we're absorbed into that movie and, in fact, where some real acting is happening between Leo and the little girl. And I love that moment when he throws her to the ground, you know, as part of the scene, then asks her if she's okay, and then her whispering in his ear, that was the best acting I've ever witnessed or something like that, you know, just his ego being boosted by this eight-year-old child that he's acting with. Because he's so impressed by her and, like, her self-possession, which is, like, everything that he lacks. I think this might be, like, a good time to, like, very quickly shout out Leonardo DiCaprio's performance. He is an actor that I don't always appreciate, but I feel like he is acting, like, as Rick Dalton. Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor, is, like, performing his character. And then he has to, like, act within the TV show within the movie. And when he acts as Rick Dalton, he acts much worse and like much more one-dimensionally than he does playing uh, Rick Dalton. And so I think it's really great that he's like able to find these like gradations of like his own acting. And it's one of the things that made me like the movie as much as I did, which granted wasn't like a tremendous amount. But this is a performance that I really like for that reason. Yeah, I agree. He's he's really at his best here. He's funny. He's got tons of layers and he does pitch the acting differently, whether he's, you know, acting or acting at acting. And Brad Pitt, of course, is in, as I said earlier, his most lovable mode, more or less the mode that he's in in the Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading when he plays sort of a, a sweet natured ditz. And I, I always love a, a slightly dim-witted Brad Pitt. Matt, it sounded like you had one more thing to say about the encounter between Trudy, the little girl, and, and Rick. Oh, just that there is a certain amount of uh, wish fulfillment to that as well, that uh, Rick Dalton is this sort of older artist who doesn't take things as seriously as the people coming up behind him. And in that conversation that he has with Trudy, she's incredibly skeptical of him, of him or whatever. But then, you know, when it comes down to it, he can still act so well that he impresses this professional coming up behind him. I mean, I felt like there was a little bit of um, Tarantino in that, in in the moment where it's like, oh yeah, Rick Dalton still does have the goods, regardless of, of how he's perceived by the people coming up underneath him. Before we leave behind the, the shooting of the show, Lancer, Matt, you had something to say about uh, Quentin's take on TV versus film in this movie. I and mean, this is one of his few movies where he deals pretty extensively, not just with cinematic history, but with television history. How do you how do you see him as, as uh, looking at that differently? The thing that's interesting to it for me is just the casting that he's Lancer is not a show that people talk about as being a great realistic portrayal of the American West, and yet he's cast Timothy Oliphant, star of Deadwood, as uh, James Stacy, the star of this this Western show. I think putting, like, the star of a prestige, like, the prestige Western drama as the star of, like, a very disposable TV show from the 1960s and 70s draws a line between them that, that maybe um, the producers of Deadwood would not draw. But what's kind of interesting to me is that ultimately this show is sort of dealing with the same themes that Twin Peaks The Return did. And in my opinion, I mean, we'll get into that with the ending, but not doing it quite as well. So it was interesting to me to see him kind of throwing a uh, throwing a brick at television uh, at the same time as a TV show was doing something better than he was. I think it's also interesting that like a lot of the sort of ambience of the movie comes from like these like non-stop noise in the background whether it's coming from like commercials on the radio or someone always has a television on and I found it like sort of oppressive and unbearable by like the midway point of the movie because it's never interesting stuff that's being said it's always just like some jingle or like a stupid TV show that doesn't matter and that we never think about anymore. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all that a lot of this stuff is about like this pop detritus that television, largely television, is like producing out into the world that like people are embracing. And so this movie ultimately about like the end of the 60s is really in a lot of ways like a love letter to like the independent 70s cinema (laughs) to come, right? And so... 
Uh, We can get to this and how it ties in with the ending a little bit later. But I think that's worth noting. Well, yeah, near the ending, I mean, don't the Manson girls actually launch their own critique of of television in the car? You know, there's that moment that they're kind of egging each other on to commit the murder by saying, well, look, it's the entertainment industry that's poisoned all of our minds. And it's because of TV that we're thinking about murder all the time. And it's somewhat framed as a fatuous statement that this girl is making. But it also seems somewhat close to, to what Tarantino may be thinking when, as you say, Ingo, he's putting in all these blaring jingles and there's kind of a constant barrage of, you know, mass marketed sound coming out of TVs and radios everywhere. I mean, it's not like Tarantino's movies are known for their low uh, death count, but sure. I hated that scene, uh, that monologue that the one Manson girl gives in the car about television or whatever, because it was a Tarantino monologue, you know what I mean? Like the Madonna conversation in Reservoir Dogs or whatever. I was like, okay, now Tarantino's going into his mode where one character expounds on pop culture. And I don't I don't know if it's supposed to be Tarantino saying like, yeah, this stuff is sort of nonsense, so that he's putting that in the mouth of, of one of the Mansons or whatever. But that was the moment I was like, wow, this style and subject matter are really not working together right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's toward the end that that starts to happen. And I think we need to get to the end. The only thing I want to mention before we start spoiling the ending is this interim in in Italy, which is one of the last fun parts (laughs) of the movie. Uh, So eventually Marvin Schwarz, as he he likes his name to be pronounced, the, uh, the manager played by Al Pacino, does convince Rick Dalton to go to Italy and shoot some movies with this faux Sergio Leone. I can't remember his name. It's Sergio something, actually. But it's, you know, the idea is that he's going to one of those giallo style spaghetti western studios to make a bunch of cheap westerns there's a quick montage of him among other things gaining weight from all the good food in italy also (laughs) marrying an italian starlet that he stars with in one of these movies of course we get mock-ups of the fabulous posters from these movies which i can only imagine on ebay that pretty soon we're going to be able to buy repros of these posters for fake spaghetti westerns from a tarantino movie and isn't uh, it implied that his wife is the daughter of the director because they have the last same last name ah i didn't catch that but that makes it's sense. Like so he marries Carbati into the, the, the family, the dynasty of, uh, of spaghetti Western makers. Again, the wife is a character we barely know at all. She's also kind of brought back as bait, basically, for, you know, that, that last night when we're afraid that she's going to get killed. But the three of them, Cliff Booth, Rick Dalton, and the Italian wife all fly back to the U.S. together. And it seems like, sort of Cato Kalin style, that they settle into the house together, right? I mean, at times we see Brad Pitt in his drive-in trailer sort of shack that he lives in with his dog. But the night of the actual murders or the night of the attempted murders, he is staying at the house, staying at the house of, of Rick Dalton and his Italian bride, right? And they are, in fact, celebrating their return from Italy by going on this huge deliberate bender where they're going to get totally drunk together. But the reason why they're getting drunk is because essentially Rick tells Cliff, I can't afford you anymore because I have gotten married and therefore we can't really like do our whole buddy thing anymore and it's supposed to be like the last hurrah because these men are incapable of like showing each other emotion that's not me editorializing that's like we have like a tabloid narrator uh, who is voiced by Kurt Russell who like occasionally intrudes to like correct the record of like what we're watching and that's what he says oh nice catch that it was Kurt Russell I didn't get that he was he was the voiceover he also appears very briefly in a cameo an old Tarantino favorite actor. Right. So Kurt informs us that this relationship is changing between the two and that Cliff Booth is going to have to go his own way. But they are going to have this one last blowout night together, which, of course, as it happens, is also the night that three people from the Manson house decide to head up to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate's house and commit their murders. Oh, yeah, it is four at the beginning. That's right. Okay, let's tell the story of those guys and how they arrive. And uh, if you have listened to Karina Longworth's podcast on the Manson murders or just read a good book on the Manson murders, you know that there's there's a lot of uh, history that starts being played with um, fast and loose at this point. So basically who we see in the car is Tex, who is like one of the very few guys that are in the Manson cult. And then these three basically teenage girls, they're sort of bickering in the car because you definitely get the sense that like none of them really want to do this, but they're also like determined to do this. And so they're sort of like getting each other irascible so that they can more readily, I guess, like commit murder. Um, They get out of the car and then hilariously, and I think like 
in a nod to like reality. One of them decides to just sort of like run off with the car. <laughs> I think uh, maybe in real life that uh, one of the Manson girls who were supposed to help commit the murders at the Tate house ended up running away. But perhaps listeners can set the record straight for us. But in any case, that was a very funny scene. And it was like very reminiscent of that scene in Django Unchained, where you get like a bunch of like the KKK writers up at like the top of a hill, like ready to go like stick a burning cross into a black person's yard. And basically, they're just sort of like jabbering amongst each other, like sort of trying to motivate themselves, but also like obviously consumed with like whatever internal drama that they've already got going on. So as a legend on screen shows us, it is the night of the attempted murders and the two men are having this crazy party night while the Italian wife is sleeping off her jet lag in the bedroom. For a little while, Brad Pitt's character leaves the scene because he needs to to walk his dog and also to try this acid-laced cigarette that he we see him earlier buy from a hippie on the street. Not a Manson hippie, I don't think, just a, a hippie who sold him an acid cigarette. It's really the one moment that drugs enter into this movie about, you know, the most drug-laced period in American popular culture. There's a lot of drinking going on, but uh, the only drugs that we see anyone drop is this acid-laced cigarette that Brad Pitt smokes, which puts him in a very strange frame of mind for the home invasion. At one point, when he has a gun to his face, he asks Tex, like, are you real? (laughs) Uh, Which was a very uh, funny, I don't know, like, line for this, like, very suspenseful scene. As cinematic benders go, uh, this one's a good one. I mean, I think there's, you have Brad Pitt, who is just totally out of it. And then you also have Rick Dalton, who has reached the stage and getting drunk when you have the energy to continue getting drunker. And that's the only thing that you can manage. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a great scene where he is making this horrible picture of frozen margaritas in his, you know, 1960s kitchen blender. And uh, here's the muffler of the uh, the Manson family's car outside because they parked or not parked. They're just idling at the end of Cielo Drive, uh, sort of riling each other up to go do the murder. Um, and he just sort of drunkenly comes out with the entire picture and starts yelling at them about being in the wrong place and their car being too loud and being hippies and is drinking, you know, margaritas um, out of the blender pitcher or whatever. Um, and it's it's fantastic. I, I guess that's, that's well Brad Pitt is out walking the dog. Is that right? Yeah, I yes. think so. And so that's the moment. I mean, to get back to my question about suspense and the, the sinister menace that's hanging over everything. I mean, this is really the moment, especially knowing Tarantino movies as we do with their traditional, um, you know, massive fountain of gore at the end that we start thinking, okay, who's going to survive this night? You know, when do we get to the part where poor pregnant Sharon Tate and her friends who are staying with her, not to mention the heroes we've been following all through this movie, are just going to be, you know, torn to pieces by the Manson family. But then what proceeds to happen afterwards is completely unexpected and depending on your point of view, somewhat disturbing. So does anybody want to take it from there? What does happen after the Manson gang, probably mistakenly, right? We don't quite know why, but probably mistakenly invades the house of Rick Dalton instead of the house next door. They come in through the wrong door and Tex gets his big line where he says, I am the devil and I've come to do the devil's work, but he delivers it to Brad Pitt, who is high as a kite and doesn't really necessarily understand what's going on. And uh, there's a, a scene later that I where Pitt is trying to account this and he can't remember the line. He's like, uh, what is it? He tells the police that the text told him, I'm the devil and I came to do some devil shit or something. <laughs> like like the, the Mansons have come with this like idea that they're going to do this operatic killing and it is immediately just diffused by Pitt. And then when, you know, in the depths of his acid-addled brain, it uh, clicks to him that uh, the house is under attack. He and his dog uh, just... The members of the Manson family that are there at the killing, those three people die in just uh, horrifically bloody fashion. Right. So we do get that explosion of gore that the movie's been setting us up for the whole time. But it's on the opposite side, right? I mean, it's it's the attempted perpetrators exactly. who are being destroyed rather than the people they're after. Um, and it's, you know, another, of course, callback to earlier scenes in the movie that's that's brought forth in this scene is that Brad Pitt the entire time has been this underemployed stuntman, right? He can do all these stunts, but no one will hire him to do them in part because of his supposed violent past. Um, I just call back to the very funny moment earlier when he's fixing Leonardo DiCaprio's TV antenna and he leaps up to the 
roof in this series of <laughs> incredibly athletic jumps, even though no one's there to see it, right? And you get this idea, oh, that's the stuntman in him that never gets to do anything. So at yeah. the end, we suddenly see not only does he get to pull out his full set of stuntman skills, but he also, this lovable dog that he's been walking around the whole time is actually a trained killer dog who comes into very handy use to uh, to tear apart the Manson gang. And you see, like, a scene where Tex, who is having, like, just various parts of his body completely, like, gored by the dog's teeth, uh, smash repeatedly on the dog's head. And the dog just refuses to let go until he hears, like, the signal from Cliff. So, like, the dog goes for Tex first. And basically, you just hear Tex screaming for, like, five minutes straight. And then (laughs) when one of the other girls also decides that she's going to try her uh, gambit at this cliff has the dog go for her and she has like the most horrific death by far there's one other girl who is like much more serious and she manages to get a knife into like the hip of cliff and but that's sort of like the most damage that any of them do and so cliff is injured by the end but you have basically text like have I, I think like it's basically implied like he has his like genitals like uh, torn off by this dog. You have yeah. this other girl who basically after she gets that knife into Cliff, Cliff just takes her by the back of the head and like rams her face into various hard surfaces in the house, including the fireplace mantle repeatedly over and over. And you can basically hear like her skull cracking in the sound effects. And then this final girl who also gets mauled pretty badly by the dog eventually sort of has this like panic attack while she's being mauled to death. You also hear her scream for about like five minutes straight. She eventually runs out. She eventually grabs the gun that like one of the Manson children had like carried with them. And she is sort of like aimlessly shooting into the air because you can tell like she no longer has control over her body anymore. And so she like runs out into the backyard where Leonardo DiCaprio's character has been just been like floating in his pool, like drink, listening to music like this entire time. And she like walks into the pool and is still shooting her gun. And Leonardo DiCaprio's character just like sort of thinks about it for a second and basically brings a flamethrower out from his shed and which is at, a prop from one of his old movies, right? It's been yes. established that he used it as a prop in a movie before and was kind of wimpy about using it. But suddenly now it comes in handy. And so he, like, sets her on fire, like, while she's in the middle of his pool, uh, which I think is, like, pretty obvious, like, an unnecessary move. <laughs> she's, like, already <laughs> run out of bullets. And uh, she is clearly sort of, like, in this, like, state where she can no longer control her body anymore. She's just screaming. And basically, he decides to torch her. And then, like, later you see sort of, like, bits of her sweater and her hair that have, like, burned up, like, floating in the pool. Yeah, there's a really horrible below-the-water shot of her kind of burned and disfigured body floating in the pool. I mean, okay, so this gets me to my most schoolmarmish question of the entire spoiler, which is that did either of you feel with this explosion of violence at the ending, but against the opposite, you know, group of whom you think the violence will be exploding again, that Tarantino was kind of wanting it both ways? I mean, he gets the chance to film the horrible, violent killing of several people, including two women. Right. Um, but he also gets a kind of, quote, happy ending in that, you know, this thing we've been dreading the whole time, the inevitability of the Sharon Tate murder and the murder of the people in the houses with her never happens. It's averted by the actions of our two main characters. So to me, there was sort of like a have your gore cake and eat it too part to this scenario that kept me feeling queasy straight through the supposed happy ending, which begins almost immediately afterwards. I mean, the tension disperses very quickly once we discover Brad Pitt's not going to die. He's just getting taken to the hospital. And in fact, that very same night, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is going to be invited over to meet the movie star next door. So this is pretty much the happiest ending that a Quentin Tarantino movie has had in some time. And that happiness left me feeling very wrong inside. I think... The one thing I would say about that is that a 
as queasy as that violence is, and it's incredibly, it's gross, it's Tarantino violence, it's, it's that sort of thing. But it, his, the way he shoots violence is always a slapstick. And I don't think any of us would have felt less queasy if he had shot the Tate murders in Tarantino style. You know, you don't really want the Tarantino version of this that ends with the killing either, right? No, I don't. And that, I guess, gets me back to my, my big philosophical question from the beginning, which is just like, why? What is he aiming to do? I mean, I actually enjoyed this movie a lot for most of its running time. I think I enjoyed it more than Ingu did. I liked the hangout stuff. I loved the sort of local color. And it's full of humor and color and good acting and all kinds of fun pastiche stuff. But once we got to the ending and I felt like this is the ending that he needs to have for some reason, for us, for him, for us to feel like it's a Tarantino ending, for the kind of rewriting of history that he did in both Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, right, to sort of take a historical injustice and, and write it. Um, but to write it in the most sadistic way that's essentially just reversing the violence and making us all cheer it on and pump our fists as the right people get killed instead of the wrong people. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this as a as a mature film for Tarantino because you know, it's sort of <laughs> reflective or it's, you know, laconic or he's, you know, bringing together all of his themes. But it doesn't seem to me like he's matured one iota. And I also feel like if he had bothered to humanize those girls or sort of like saw them as human beings in any way whatsoever. What he does to them and what basically these uh, grown men do to these teenagers is pretty appalling. Um, but there's a Manson family. I mean, I, I, I don't <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think like next to like, you know, Nazis, which he's also done, I, I, I don't think you'd find less sympathetic people than the and cult murderers. I don't. Um... That's certainly the case, Matt. That's certainly the case. I mean, he's killing the safest people that he can kill while still evoking that familiar Tarantino glorification of violence fist bump. And that's why I say that there's like a, there's a lot of ambiguity there. And I, I don't yeah. quite get what he's up to. And I don't really I'm not really interested, I guess, in this story of like this, like very manly man. And then this like more weenie ish man who like finds his masculinity again at the expense of these like teenagers who probably have like their own extremely fucked up lives that we never got to see because he never bothered to humanize them. And I think combined with sort of like this idealization of like the 70s, again, like very like hyper masculine indie cinema that is to come, that obviously Rick is like sort of like destined to enter now sort of like as a hero and like an urban legend. It just like... I don't know. It sort of like makes me a little bit sad because I feel like if you took away all of the Tarantino trappings, this could basically be like Charles Bronson movie or sort of like an NRA movie, you know, like the uh, only way to like stop a bad guy with like some knives is like a good guy with a flamethrower. And so this idea that like all the hippies were wrong and it, it's just like some like two dudes like one of whom may be a little bit insecure like all they need to do is like feel confident in like their violence again and that's how you get your happy ending like that's kind of depressing to me Okay, I think we have to leave that ambiguity just suspended there. I mean, it's really something that this movie leaves every viewer to deal with. And some people go in with different Tarantino feelings than others. Some people are going to not want to see this movie at all because of their experience with him. And I'm still writing my review and trying to sort through my feelings myself. But thank you guys so much for coming in and, uh, and helping me suspend myself in the place of ambiguity together. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. If you like the show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Jessamine Molly, and our engineer was Merritt Jacob. For Ingu Kang and Matt Desim, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.